Section four of Mornings at Bow Street by John White. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Loves of McGillies and Julia Cobb. Mr. Robert McGillies was brought before the magistrates to answer the complaint of Miss Julia Cobb. Mr. Robert McGillies was a tall, stout, portly, middle-aged Scottish gentleman, and Miss Julia Cobb, a diminutive hibernian young lady in a richly braided dark blue habit smart riding hat long black veil and red morocco ridicule miss julia cobb made a multitude of complaints by which it appeared that whilst she was living a gay and happy spinster with her friends in dublin she was courted by mr robert mcgillies whose card bore the initials m p after his name and she, conceiving that M.P. meant Member of Parliament, lent a willing ear to his honeyed words, that she afterwards discovered his profession was the taking of likenesses, and that the M.P. meant miniature painter, that notwithstanding the disappointment of this discovery, she continued her affections towards him, and eventually consented to come with him to England, not as his wife, but as his friend pro tempore, for she could not think of taking up with the miniature painter for life. But they did come to England accordingly, and took up their rest in London. But from that period, Mr. Robert McGillies became an altered man. He relinquished his M.P. profession, and lived entirely upon her means, spending almost his whole time in smoking and drinking, lying in bed with his clothes on, and amusing himself between whiles with tearing his and her garments in shreds and tatters, that at length her affection for him began to evaporate, and being much impoverished by these vagaries of his, she determined to whistle him off and let him down the wind to prey on fortune, as Othello talked of doing by the gentle Desdemona, that in consequence of this determination she got herself acquainted with another lover, not a Scottish and Scottish soi descent M.P., but a real unadulterated and genuine Irish mem, par, one who had taken a house for her in Norfolk Street, Strand furnished it fit for a princess to live in, and provided her with all things fitting for a lady in her situation, that Mr. Robert McGillies felt himself so dissatisfied at this new arrangement that he forced his way into her new abode in Norfolk Street, turned her charwoman out of doors, broke her glasses, tore her clothes to ribbons, spat in her face seventeen times, and swore he loved her so that she should never live with any other gentleman till she was completely dead and done with nay more having done all this he laid himself down on the best bed in the house and taking out his pipe began smoking away as he used to do at home though she told him her new lover couldn't abide the smell of bacca under these circumstances, Miss Julia Cobb begged the magistrates to interpose the strong arm of the law between her and Mr. Robert McGillies. He was a strong, powerful man, she said, and she verily believed he would never let her go to her grave alive, a figure of speech which she afterwards explained to mean that she verily believed to be intended to do her some grievous bodily harm, or in other words, he intended to prevent her going to her grave in the natural way. The officers who took Mr. Robert McGillies into custody stated that they found him, though in the middle of the day, stretched out at full length in bed, with all his clothes on except his coat, and smoking a long pipe, 
and on the chair by his bedside was a quantity of tobacco and a large jorum of ale. Mr. Robert McGillies, who had been with difficulty restrained while these statements were making, now entered upon his defense in form and manner following. She is a villain, and will swear anything, thumping the table and bursting into tears. But I don't blame her. I blame her evil advisers. Another thump and more tears. She has been heard as a woman. And now let me be heard as a man. A louder voice, a heavier thump, and a greater flood of tears. I was a bright man before I knew her. Her name is not Julia Cobb. She has deceived many a man under the name of Julia Cobb. Her right name is Jane Spencer, and she knows it. I don't want to go near her, I tell you. A fresh supply of tears. I love her better than my own heart's blood. But I don't care. I won't be used in this matter. I'll be blank if I will. Confound her and them altogether, I say. But I don't blame her. I blame the devils she had got about her. She said to me one day, says she, Come, McGillies, says she, let you and I go down upon our bare knees and swear to be true to each other forever and ever. And now she uses me in this matter. Oh, 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 lots of tears. What am I brought here for? What have I done? Answer me that. Oh, oh, oh. And Mr. Robert McGillies filled up the pauses in the speech by licking in with his tongue the tears and which followed plentifully through the stubble on his upper lip. And having made an end of speaking, the magistrate told him he was a very foolish man, and Miss Julia Cobb was not a bit better than she should be. Nevertheless, she must not be subjected to personal violence, and he therefore must put in bail to keep the peace towards her, himself in fifty and two sureties and twenty-five each. It appeared, however, that his friends had previously been bound for him in a charge of assault upon the same lady, and the magistrate, declaring their recognizances forfeited by this his subsequent violence, they declined coming forward again. So Mr. Robert McGillies was consigned to his own lamentations in the dreary dungeons of Tothill Fields, Bridewell, and the false-hearted Julia Cobb, returned to her new lover in Norfolk Street. Tipsy Julia Miss Julia Johnson was charged by a watchman with infesting his bait in a state of basely drunkenness. It was King Street, Your Honor, that same I'm now spaking about, thundered Phelim O'Donoghue, and she wouldn't come out of it anyhow because the beer had got the best of her, and she couldn't, your honor, and so I gathered her up with her silks and satins, and put em all together in the watch-house, your honor. Did she abuse you? asked his worship. Fate, and she hadn't sense enough for that, your honor, replied the strong lunged fellum. Miss Julia's silks and satins gave manifest proof that she had not been able to keep her feet, and as she had nothing but tears to offer in her defense, she was adjudged to be drunken and disorderly, in order to find sureties for her better behavior in future. An Evening's Pleasure A schoolmaster of Greenwich, an apothecary of Plymouth, and a London sheriff's officer, three good fellows and true, were brought before the bench, charged with having shown off a little too much in the pit of the Olympic Theatre. Their situation in the office, when the magistrate took his seat on the bench, was thus. The sheriff's officer, dead drunk on the floor of the outer passage, the apothecary dead drunk on the benches within the office, and the schoolmaster very drunk, but very sprightly withal, upon his legs before the magisterial table, then as to their personal condition, 
the sheriff's officer had only half a coat the entire sinister side having been torn away vertically and he was moreover so grievously bedaubed with blood about the face that his features were indistinguishable the apothecary had his garments entire but the exterior case of his olfactory apparatus was marvelously swollen and distorted more like the booting proboscis of an infant elephant than the nose of a christian compounder of medicine the schoolmaster's countenance was like that of his friend the sheriff's officer excessively bloody and his left eye was closed by a large blue and green tumor from an orifice in the centre of which the claret flowed continually towards the corner of his mouth as if in mockery of the bumpers that had brought him before the bench as to their achievements it appeared by the evidence of sundry theatrical prompters scene shifters firemen constables and deputy constables that they entered the theatre arm in arm with each a flaming cigar in his mouth that they had no sooner got within the pit than they began to shout lustily in the music that the music not answering to their shouts the schoolmaster rushed gallantly forward over the heads of the more uncorinthian part of the audience to the infinite detriment of sundry leghorn and other bonnets and clearing the barrier of the orchestra at one audacious leap he dashed into the regions beneath the stage in search of the musicians that he was thence expelled by the united efforts of supernumeraries attached to the concern and that as the said supernumeraries of the concern attempted to get him back over the barrier of the orchestra the sheriff's officer and the apothecary scrambled forward to his assistance and prevented his being so put back with all their might that a general fight ensued that many people left the theatre in dismay that others who were entering refused to compete their entree that at length the riotous trio got over by dint of numbers they were carried to this office and that the manager was positively determined to prosecute to all this the schoolmaster was the only one of the three who could say anything in reply but then he was a host in himself he as in duty bound by the nature of his calling was the logic of the spree but unfortunately his logical powers were mystified with old port and beating and he could make little or nothing of it he began his defence with three distinct emissions of the fumes of the old port above mentioned and then told the magistrate how they were all three devonshire men and old friends who had met for an evening's pleasure after a long and tedious separation how the apothecary had never been in london in all his life before and had been let into a secret by that night's adventure how he himself had taken his tea before he set out from greenwich to meet the apothecary how the apothecary dined and how he did not how they met with the sheriff's officer how they got drunk at the shades at london bridge at the expense of the apothecary how they got more drunk in fleet street at the expense of himself the schoolmaster and how they got drunk in the superlative degree somewhere hereabouts how somebody gave them orders for the olympic how they went there and found the pit as silent as the grave how they called for music and no music came how the schoolmaster dashed into the cellar in search of the fiddlers but couldn't find any how the folks felt themselves offended at his interference how a devil of a row ensued how he might have escaped but scorned to do so how they were finally captured and how they were vastly sorry for all of it lots of conversation ensued upon these premises and the manager after two or three private conferences declared himself satisfied but the magistrate said he was not if poor men said his worship were brought before me 
charged with such mischievous absurdities, they would be inevitably sent to prison, unless they could find bail. And I will not suffer others to escape, because they may have certain means of satisfying those they injure. So the schoolmaster and the sheriff's officer were held to bail for their appearance at the sessions, and the apothecary was suffered to return to his disconsolate family, unscathed, because he had not been quite so obstreperous as his companions. A Lamplighter's Funeral An elderly matron, one Mrs. Bridget Fogarty, the lady of an operative architect, vulgo a bricklayer, was charged with having wantonly assaulted a patrol whilst in the execution of his duty. It seems that a deceased lamplighter was interred the evening before in St. Pancras' burying ground with much funeral pomp, there being much more than two hundred of his brother Illuminati present, each bearing a flaming torch in celebration of his obsequies. This, it was said, in the universal mode of lighting a lamplighter to that born from whence no traveller returns. And, of course, the spectacle attracted crowds of people, wherever crowds of people are collected, where the patrol very properly repair, to prevent disorder. And the officer in question was there for that notorious purpose, when Mrs. Bridget Fogarty abruptly gave him a slap on the cheek with her own right hand, that hand being all begrimed with tar, in consequence of her having held one of the half-melted funeral torches, while the bearer of it took a little of Deedee's consolatory on his way back from the mournful ceremonies. This was the assault complained of, but the officer said he did not wish to be hard with Mrs. Fogarty, neither would he have taken her into custody, had not the surrounding multitude echoed the blow with such a shout of exultation, as gave the lady a very evident intention of repeating it. Mrs. Bridget Fogarty, when asked by the magistrate that she had to say for herself, wept audibly, and assured his worship that she took the gentleman for a friend of her husband's, or she never should have taken such a liberty as that air. She declared that it was not tar upon her hand, but suit, plain, ordinary suit, off of a chimney-sweeper, and if his worship pleased, she would tell him all about it. His worship did not object and she proceeded to state that she had been to see her husband, then lying ill in the hospital, that on her return she went to see the lamplighter's burying, and that the folks were all very merry, and quite larkish in a matter, that being curious to see what sort of a coffin it was, she scrouged herself through the mob till she reached the brink of the grave, and she had no sooner done so than the mob pushed a chimney-sweeper into it, and pushed her atop of him, and that was the way her hands were blacked, the magistrate told her he thought her visit to her sick husband should have disposed her more seriously than to be mingling in such a disgraceful scene, and desired her to go home, and conduct herself more decently in the future. Mrs. Fogarty was very thankful for the lainty shown to her, and departed courtesying and drying her eyes. End of section 4